The ARA acknowledges the traditional owners of the land where we have recorded this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present and recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as Australia's first traders, who utilise a sophisticated network of trading paths that have facilitated the exchange of goods, knowledge and culture for millennia. Hi, I'm Paul Zara, CEO of the Australian Retailers Association. Welcome to Season 5 of Retail Therapy, proudly brought to you by American Express. This season, I'll be chatting with a great lineup of leaders in Australia's retail industry right here in the Amex Lounge, including the CEOs of some of the biggest retailers in Australia and across the globe. We'll be finding out what makes them tick, what defines their leadership style, and how they got to the top of their game. Joining me for some retail therapy today is Mark Ronan, CEO at Adairs, a retail frontrunner in all things bedding, bath and homewares. Mark has a phenomenal understanding of the industry, having held a range of leadership positions with Adairs over the course of more than 15 years. We're going to get some great insights into leadership today and I'm thrilled to have him here as a guest. Mark, a warm welcome to you. Thanks, Paul. Glad so, to be here. Yeah, great to have you. So if you've been at the Dares for 15 years, that must make you about 30 then, does it? <laughs> <laughs> well, might least, only slightly older than that. Oh, yeah, very good. Well, you, you obviously know the business really well. So we're going to get stuck into it, Mark. You've held such a range of leadership positions. Please, if you could just give our listeners a brief overview of the journey that led you to becoming a CEO of one of Australia's most recognised retailers. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, when I joined Adairs, my roles previously had all been in finance and operations. I, I'm a chartered accountant by background. And then you start to wonder, well, how do you become a CEO of a retail business if you're a chartered accountant? So chartered accountant by background. And as I worked through that sort of career before joining Adairs, it was all about how do I get more involved in the operations of, of a business rather than just reporting and talking about the numbers and doing the analysis. So you know, I got I got pretty lucky. I joined Adairs at almost exactly the right time. The business was going through a lot of change at the time. I came in as the finance manager and reporting into a CFO who was far broader remit than just CFO. He's Michael Cherubino, who's still in the business today. And many of the uh, landlords out there would know Michael very well. He was running property, IT, finance and supply chain. So it sort of gave me the ability of finance manager to just take that off him and say, well, I'll look after this and you look after the rest. But it also then sort of gave me the the wherewithal to get involved in a lot of things within the, uh, within the Adairs business. So it's always, I think finance is a great opportunity. You get to see what's happening, but uh, it gave me a great opportunity to sort of lean into how do we do things differently. You know, I think one of the first projects I undertook was implementing a time and attendance system together with the retail ops team. And that got me closer to, well, how does this actually work yes. out there? Like, how's it going to, how's things going to happen? And as I said, we we're in the midst of a lot of change. Adairs, when I joined, was 95% of our product came from local suppliers or, or brands that, you know, many people would know in department stores and other stores across Australia. And we were in the process of changing that to being a bit more vertically integrated and, and private, which meant that we had a lot of change happening all at the same time. So as that moved on, I got to become head of merchandise planning. I left finance and said, well, if we're going to do things direct, we're going to need to be much better at managing inventory. We could see the cost of there. So I got a great opportunity to lead merchandise planning. And always with the view of, right, well, we don't want you to stay there forever get in there, set it up, move to the next thing. And uh, people probably saw more in me than I saw in myself back then. They were they were planning out my career and I was just getting in there and uh, and learning things along the way. So, you know, I got the great opportunity to merch pl- merchandise planning and then just by chance, our head of retail operations resigned and that gave me an opportunity to run stores. 
whilst we again looked for uh, a great person to come in and take over from me in the meantime. So yeah. uh, as you started to build out that those opportunities throughout the business, it just made natural sense that I kept picking up new bits of the business and, and rolled with those along the way. As you said, I've done almost everything at Adairs from finance to merch planning to retail ops. Then I became COO and looked after all the digital experience as well as started to pick up technology, marketing before uh, we listed on the stock exchange and we sort of needed to straighten some things up. And pretty quickly after that, I became uh, CEO. So um, you get to see a lot and yes. you get to learn a lot along the way. How, how long have you been a CEO for now, Mark? Uh, 2016, I became CEO. So whatever, seven, seven odd years now. And when you think back at that time, what was the transition like? Oh, it was, well, it was relatively straightforward, I think, in terms of within the organisation. You know, one of the things of doing all those roles is I think succession planning was pretty well earmarked to the rest of the business that most people thought I was going to be the next CEO. Yeah. So that was, that's a nice thing. So it made it pretty easy to slot into the roles. Having done so many roles and worked with so many people along the way, uh, it also made it pretty seamless internally. I think the biggest challenge for me was all the other stuff that comes with that. I, I always tell people who are about to become a CEO, you don't realise how important that CEO is to you until they're not there anymore. Yes. Yeah, you know, that, that just that ability to have that quick conversation and, hey, I'm thinking about this, what do you reckon? And building that network in reverse when your CEO is yes. something that takes a bit more time versus when when you're you're a member of the management team or the executive team and you're chatting to the CEO regularly, you take all of that for granted and then when that person's not there anymore, all of a sudden you go, oh, actually, they really gave me a lot of steering and just a mm. little bit of keeping us on the right track, um, which made it made it so much easier when you're not the CEO than when you are the CEO and that role's gone. So you definitely notice uh, what you do. And I've spoken to a number of people like, oh, I'm taking on this role. What am I going to miss most about them not being there? And I go, just that they're not there and that mm. you forget how much uh, help they give you along the way. Because it's more than just one step up, isn't it, Mark? When you think about your career, it's not just as you've been around and you've been promoted as people have moved on and you've tried different things. And I think there's a lesson in that too because often we shy away of picking up a portfolio where we don't have experience. And, in fact, it's really worked for you, hasn't it? So it's rounded you off as a leader, as a manager, and has prepared you well for the CEO role. But the CEO role is not just one step up. It's, it's many steps up because you're the last person in the organisation where all the – decisions and all the problems come to so you know when you think about it you sort of explain it you miss you you know you you realize how much a ceo does uh when you're actually in the job do you yeah. do you see that as well do you think it was more than one step up uh for sure and i think then adding uh, the listed environment also adds a little bit more yes. where all of a sudden you're the the person everyone wants to talk to out there in the in the market and that adds a little bit of uh, additional noise I say to the role where you've you're managing a couple of different stakeholders than yes. if you're uh, perhaps privately held but I, I think it does um, it is more than one step the, the the step is large and it and it does redefine all of your relationships whilst mm -hmm. people reported you in the past there was you had that CEO who to your point they were the ultimate accountability they make the final decision um and you you influence that and you're in there and you're talking about it and you might be putting the whole thing forward in there but their endorsement is them making that final yes. decision and until you are that person you just you don't really realize how big that that step is and how you've got to give yourself some time too i mean i think that's one of the other pieces of good advice i've got along the way is and my team have got used to me over the time saying, I need time to think about these things. Don't, I'm not going to turn up to a meeting and you guys present all this. If it's a big enough decision, 
We need time to think about it. Give it to me 24 hours beforehand and I'll read it and then we'll have a conversation about it. But just giving yourself time as CEO yes. to think about those things versus historically often in operational roles, you just make decisions on the fly and <laughs> you, you keep going. You realise the decision gets slightly bigger, the impact's wider, the organisational change might be bigger, the communication. Have we thought about all of those things? which historically um, when you're doing some other roles, you perhaps don't think about because you're not required to and no, someone else picks no. that up. Now, you spoke about having to manage new key stakeholders. So I'm a, in that, of course, there's the media, which you wouldn't have had to deal with previously, and there's uh, in the investment community, which you would have not have dealt with previously, and probably a stronger stakeholder is the board, uh, which yep. you would have had access to but probably didn't have to have uh, daily interactions with. How did you go about learning those new cohorts, I guess, and and mastering them? Yeah, I think a, a bit, I was lucky in terms of because it was well earmarked, my time in the boardroom was high. So, you know, in terms of from the moment we listed and even as we went through the listing process, there was a very firm view that, you know, I would play a pretty big role in in where the business was going after that. So having me in the room from the start was David's, uh, David McLean, the previous CEO. He was very much on, well, Mark's just going to be my right-hand man along right. here because eventually he's going to have to manage this. But it does force you to think about it a bit differently and how you form those connections outside of the boardroom and making sure that you're checking in with people and creating a process that you sort of build out yourself. And and everyone's different too, as you know, Paul, you, particularly when you get to a board sort of room, different people like different forms of communication. They like to check in with you differently and you've got to work your way through understanding that. And, and often what I have liked about it and I've got better at it, and I think most people learn along the way is just asking's fine. Like yes. if you're not expected to actually be a miracle worker and know, well, they're going to like that style of communication and they're going to like that. Often sitting down with people and saying, hey, you know, I'm new to the gig. It's a great opportunity when you're new to a role to ask lots of, you know, dumb questions yeah. in inverted commas because it, it just helps you clear, clear things up and move forward at a quicker pace rather than trying to guess what everyone is, is looking right. to do. But often we, we want to prove ourselves that we know how to do this and all of that. But <laughs> most people don't expect you to do that. They're happy for you to ask the question and, and work out what works across those those relationships. I think the only one that doesn't work quite to the same way is that investment community I, uh, and media to a degree. I mean, you're far more experienced with the media than I am, Paul. And I sort of adopt a small media approach, which is less is better for our business, because I think a lot of the time when you're dealing with media and we're not a brand that's out there and talking to things regularly, it's often more in context with a broader retail type yes. opinion versus versus the Adair's opinion specifically. So I'm happy to share in, in those sorts of things when they're happening, but it, I, we try and I probably try and uh, shy away a bit from the, uh, the Adair specific stuff because <laughs> there's always an angle and, uh, you know, people are trying to work you out where you want to go and, and how you make that happen. And I think, you know, we're much better to leave the uh, some of the retail stuff to yourself to uh, to drive the, those outcomes out there because then we get one voice, which I think is clearer. Yeah, that's true. And that's and that's what we're, we're, we're aiming to do. It's an important part of the advocacy, particularly when it comes to government. Now, uh, there, there's some great insights there. And I want to talk a little bit now around Adair specifically because you have seen remarkable growth over the past 15 years. What do you attribute that success to? Yeah, I think... It really comes down to having a pretty clear vision and a board that is was very supportive along the way. Like we had a lot of um, great board members who were really in aligned with our strategy and our vision for the business and therefore supported that and, if anything, encouraged us to go faster. So, 
you know, if I think there's probably three or four key planks from when I joined, I talked before about going from 95% of our product being third-party brands to now 95% of our product is designed and developed by us in-house, which gets us away from competing purely on price yes. and those elements. What it gets back to is then just thinking about how all that comes together. So we get to we get to really design and develop our product range. So that's a big plus for the way we step forward. I think about our homemaker strategy. So that was already well and truly in place along the way, but our homemaker stores getting out of just being a shopping center store and yes. building out that capability to offer a much wider product range. So it wasn't just sheets and towels as the business was historically founded upon. You know, we got to expand into the homewares as you talked about at mm. the start. You know, Adairs is now more than a business that's really aimed at that. How do we set up your your bedroom to how do we really showcase your whole home so those two uh, sort of strategies really focusing on product so making sure you know we talk a lot about product is what it's all about like that's how we're going to differentiate ourselves how do we continue to invest in that and that's been a strategy for a long period of time but that then has been complemented by things like our loyalty program and building out that the linen lover program and then equally um being committed to in-store service, which the business has been committed to all the way along. So really focused on how we make sure that in-store team are a real asset. And I think a lot of times in-store teams are potentially in retail are often thought of as costs Yes. versus they actually can provide that amazing customer experience. And, and that's a real plank for, for driving business growth. I'm glad you said that because that's always been my perspective. That's the big point of difference. You must be watching your competitors fairly closely because this is quite a competitive space that you operate in. Who do you consider your key competitors in, a, in the Australian marketplace? Well, in the Australian marketplace, we've got department stores have always been there, your Meyer and David Jones. Discount department stores play, play a big role when you think about our category in the home and then in the specialty place, sort of, we've got Bed Bath and Table, who are who are very good at it. Pillow Talk, Sheridan have always been there as well. So we've got sort of those established, and more and more these days, there's a bunch of online players who yes. specialise in areas of our business. You know, there's a number of people out there now selling sheets and bed linen and the like. And um, those businesses have all evolved over the last five or six years. They certainly weren't there. Uh, they, they largely weren't there when I took over as CEO, but we've seen the evolution of the the online business and their ability to eat away at small markets and be really focused on those little markets. But the big guys that we concentrate on come back to those two or three specialty players and then the the, the department stores both yep. at the top end and uh, and the and the discount end to, to make sure that we're clear on what's happening. Now, you must travel a bit, you and your team, internationally to see what's happening in the other markets and the US being one of the, the largest markets that you would compare yourself to and you would know that Bed Bath & Beyond, I've always wanted to know what was in the Beyond section. <laughs> so the Bed Bath is really clear to me. I'm not really clear what happens in the Beyond section. You've heard, uh, you know that they're potentially filing for bankruptcy. By the time this podcast goes here, they may have already become bankrupt. They may have closed. They may be still open. They may have new owners. What do you think the key learnings are when you look at that business? Yeah, it's really interesting. We've, I've followed that business for a long time and really enjoyed their stores. And understand they had a quite a good strategy around specific stores looking after specific markets like we would off, often all obviously visit ones in New York and in the bigger bigger markets so you get a different experience as we all know versus when you get out in the suburbs and you know they had a very large uh, store footprint but I think one of the the big pieces there was like a lot of those incumbents are probably a bit slow to pick up on online and didn't do enough in the online space early days. And then equally, I always enjoyed the big the Bed Bath experience around the variety of brands you could get in there. I mean, they were, a, if you thought about a really good department store 
that's what I thought of Bed Bath & Beyond. It was that homewares floor, but done really, really well and almost on steroids. So much product there that you you had so many options. And what they've tried to do over the last few years was they probably got there too late on things like private label and how they developed their own range in order to maximise the margins. And we know that, you know, retail gets harder and harder when lots of people are sharing the margin. So, you know, going direct and, and building out their own ranges was probably the right strategy. Yes. But it really didn't kick in till the last three or four years. And then I think they perhaps went a bit fast and alienated their customer along the way. I think, you've, you know, one of the things that Dares did really well over that journey was we took it slowly and yes. we built up our own independent brands and we built them and you know only in the last few years have we even started to move away from them so that we are just a dares and you know i think about how we become that we are the brand and it, the product within there sits under that brand but it's taken us 15 years to do it and i think they probably tried to do it in three or four which right. probably meant they left some customers behind because we know you've got to take the customer on the journey you know that's yes. that's what we're all here to do and you've got to make sure you look after that customer along the way and i think in our category customers Brand still matters in some areas and the US probably more so. And no doubt with the, I think it would be harder today to do it with the advent of things like Amazon, where all of those brands that you may be, once upon a time, you were their, their ticket to the market and you were doing all the customer piece, but those brands now have so many options of how to get to the customer that Bed Bath and Beyond stop servicing it. And the customer says, well, okay, I can buy it from Amazon. So whereas when we were doing it, it became it, it just got harder for the customer to access that product versus now it's much easier. Yeah, very interesting. It's a uh, it's interesting that the private label transition because you're right. It's it's it, it, you've got to take the customer on the journey. It can't happen overnight. It has to. And there's been other <laughs> examples in this market where new owners of of, of organisations decide that private label is the way to get better margins, but it's a slow process. Has to be done done over more than a decade to get where you yep. need to be. So really good, interesting um, insights there. Now, did you, Mark, always consider yourself an aspiring leader, even from a young age, or was it a passion that developed over time? That's funny. I, I, I don't often think of myself as an aspiring leader today. <laughs> I think of myself more as a as just I, I enjoy working with people. Yes. And that's when I think about what leadership is to me. Ultimately, I've got to make, you know, in the CEO role, you make the final call. But how do you empower people? How do you work with people? How do you collectively, you know, we've sort of got a line in here that, you know, collaboration trumps individual brilliance and and it will every time. Yes. So, you know, I think about all the way through my career, I've loved working with people. I like working with really clever people and how do we put together a solution to a challenge or a new opportunity and, and put that in front of customers or boards or whoever we need to, to do to, to move that along. So, but then when I look back, I ran into someone at Del from Deloitte a, long, a little while ago and they said, well, you were always a troublemaker. We always knew you'd go far because you just wouldn't accept the status quo. You know, you <laughs> wanted to change it. You wanted to build it. And your ideas were good. You just, you know, we just weren't ready to run as fast as you wanted us to run. So there's an element where I think I've always sort of had this want for continual change and improvement and we can be better and we can do things more efficiently and we can provide a better customer experience. And I think it's that passion that actually has naturally led to me being a, a leader within a retail business as opposed to, you know, waking up when I was a young kid and saying, I want to be CEO of a business. I, that's certainly not something that I ever thought about. I just wanted to always make businesses better in whatever role I was doing within those businesses. And that's probably naturally led to me sitting in the chair that I am today. Yeah, fair enough, because you, you did spend time when researching for this podcast. You've held positions with Deloitte, River Capital and Sovereign Hotel Group. How did you end up or what attracted you to the retail landscape specifically? 
um, because they're sort of all they're very different roles. Those three yeah. roles in where you've ended up and where you've been really passionate about. Yeah, it's interesting. And uh, uh, until I went to Adairs, those three roles sort of led, led into each other. I went from Deloitte to River Capital. They were a client of mine. So I right. moved to a client side. And then at River Capital, we bought a private equity stake in the Sovereign Hotel Group and decided they didn't right. have enough operational expertise. So I, I left Love to you. the other side. <laughs> so I, I sort of had this career that was being taking advantage of opportunities that happened to appear at the at the right time. But I think across all of those, I've always enjoyed working with customers or clients. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I left Deloitte was I felt like we we advised clients for a very small part of the year, but I wanted to be a bigger part of that. I wanted mm. to work out how we how we grew that business and um, how we actually and the, and a business that had real moving parts was interesting. And then River Capital was a funds management business, but it was an interesting space. We were growing the business. The guys had gone out on their own. So we needed to put together processes. And so there was a lot to happen early days. And then I reached a point of, right, well, actually now what's next? Like how do we, how, how from my role am I growing this business? It's it's not really something that I can do from the back office. So it's really about the guys in the front line. And then obviously I, I moved to the Sovereign Hotel Group, which was sort of my first real taste of true running of a business that has moving parts and inventory and stock and customers and all of the exciting stuff. And it really sort of lit a fire, I think, in me that I you, there's nothing better than working for brands that you when you talk to people they understand the brand when you when you're in there you know you're making a difference you could see sales reports every day all of that element so it sort of really came to light through uh, through running pubs and uh, and fine dining restaurants you know we're we're very end, very different ends uh, running a fine dining restaurant versus running a pub in Bendigo are two def- different things but I I was lucky I got to see both of them within that role but it sort of did it, it sort of excited me and then I thought well retail's a great place to go and and then uh, you know once I got to Adairs the opportunities just kept opening I guess you think about lots of people get to three or four years within their within a role and they're looking for the next opportunity and the beauty of Adairs was it gave me those opportunities within the business rather than thinking I've done four years as finance manager here. I want to expand the role and I have to go somewhere else to do that. No, no, we, we can find a role for, for you within Adairs. We think you can add value here, here and here, which has been, um, which, which has just helped grow my retail experience, but also helped de- develop that passion even further for how we, uh, how we deliver great product and great service. Uh, amazing. I love your service-centric thinking. Uh, and, uh, you know, it clearly it sounds like you sort of sound like you didn't have a plan and you've fallen into all these jobs, but I think it's probably been a bit more um, uh, managed than, than the way you've presented it. I think you're not giving yourself enough credit there, Mark, because uh, clearly you've got the, the skill and capability to constantly change because many people listening uh, have uh, been averse to, to moving roles because they're concerned about doing something that they're not going to be great at. And part of it's been your curious nature and your ability to, to, to pick up a portfolio and learn it uh, and become really good at it. And I think that's a real credit for you. Well, I think, I think the other piece of that is you've got to be selective. So whilst I don't think I had a plan to get here, I was selective about the roles that I took, took along the way yes. to make sure that you were advancing your career, that you were interested in what was going on. I think if you've got a passion for the business, you should always work for businesses that you're passionate about what they ultimately do, yes. whether that's in a finance role or an IT role. It's much easier 
to be great at your role if you're excited about what the business does overall and what that end result is. And that's what I've always looked for in my roles is making sure that I'm I'm interested in what the business does and, and I can learn from what the business does and work with good people. I think they're the two elements yeah. that, you know, be very selective about the roles you do and work with good people that you feel are in, in line with your sort of priorities in life and the way you want to go about it. And they, in, if you can get that alignment, then good things happen on the other side of that. No, really, really good points there. Is there a specific nugget of wisdom or piece of advice you've received during your career that's, that you've always remembered? <laughs> that's been something you've actually, that's come to you in, many, in the many roles that you've actually performed? Yeah, I think the simple one that, there's a couple that probably stand out. The simple one is it's about the customer always. And I just think, you know, I, I got to work with Brett Blundy for a, for a long time, obviously a, a great retailer in Australia and has developed great brands, but really came back to a really simple message, which I think helps you in every role. If you think about what's in it for the customer, where do we want to be? It's about the customer always actually really can l- make decision-making much easier. And that's one of the things that I've found is that having that as your, it's a great piece of advice and then how you apply it is really important, but you, you've just got to think about how that works. Yes. And the other one that sort of jumps to mind is commit. So often in in business, you can have a number of ideas on the table and we're very good at not not either fully committing to something or just letting hedging our bets. I think we're very good at hedging our bets. I know I am. It's one of the things that I keep, you know, we to do that properly, we got to we got to really go after it. And what would that actually look like? And what would it take? And I got told once in in the private equity world, where I think these guys are better at it than perhaps others, they're very good at. Well, we're not here for fifteen years to work out if this is going to work, Mark. Yes. You've got you've got to prove to me that this is going to work in the next two years. And we prefer to lose a million dollars or whatever the number is, and know at the end of it whether it works or not, than have you slowly, gradually burn this sort of candle along. Now that probably goes against some of the, you know, your private label strategy probably doesn't fall into that. But, you know, there's there's always ideas. And and I think that was a, a good piece of advice because it forced you to think about what would what would success look like? Yes. How much would we need to invest to get a true rec, true feeling of is it successful or not? And it just helps prioritization because it's so easy. And I think retail and all industries, I'm just spent more time in retail. <laughs> there's always something else that you could be doing. And and everyone's got a new idea. So how do you make sure that you're clear on what you're going after and you're investing the appropriate amount of time and effort into those things to prove them up or disprove them? You're not going to get them all yeah. right, but you've got to get to the other end of it to be able to make that final decision of do we go or not go? How would you describe your leadership style? Uh, I, I like to think I'm relatively collaborative. I like lots of input. And the guys that have worked with me for a long time, I think it's one of the challenges of being a CEO know that I bounce I like to bounce ideas around with people as opposed to my idea is the best idea I just want to get us thinking so I start pretty collaboratively I'm very happy for to work together as a team I like working with teams of people and and that I that concept of once we walk into the room everyone's idea is equal yeah yes I sit in this chair but I'm just one person in the room and I'm not an expert in everything, so therefore we're much better to walk into those rooms and think about how we collaboratively go about it. And then once we get aligned, 
we've got to be clear on that. And and so I think about collaboration, sort of how I think about how we put together a strategy and where we're going and, and all of those elements and my style, but then try making sure that what follows from that is a really clear communication message back to the rest of the organisation so that stylistically then we don't get lost. So we've done the work up front and now we're executing. And so I think my style often comes back to everyone's happy. I, I like to collaborate, but then once we once we all get on the same page, Let's be clear on what that page looks like and let's now run that page uh, all the way through because otherwise, again, you can end up with lots of little ideas creeping in and, and that often te- tends to lead to pretty you know, not great execution. So yes. a lot of my guys are very used to it's all about execution, guys. If we execute well, then what we get is a real view on what the customer thought about what we were doing. Mm. If we don't execute well, then there's a whole bunch of reasons why it didn't work that were within our control. And that's, for me, that's a, that's an element of frustration. If we if we don't execute well, then we've almost got to do it again because we didn't test it properly. And and so but my style is largely collaborative. I love to talk to people. I love to get around. I'm out in stores. We have a, we have a piece at Adairs called Ideas at Adairs, which is available through our whole internet. So anyone can effectively jump on there and send me an idea and I read them all. So, you know, just being in touch with what's going on in the organisation is probably one of my other sort of styles I, I like to know and wander around and understand what everyone's working on and, and where we're going and making sure that sort of still lines up with the, uh, the strategy and the vision. Now, it's an interesting time for the retail sector with so much emerging uh, technology and innovation. What's the focus at Adairs when it comes to tech and innovation? Uh, it's a good it's a good question. There's always new technology coming into the space. So I think um, from Adairs, we're very focused on customer at the moment. So spending a lot of time on thinking about that single view of customer. How do we tie? You've got so many interaction points with customer across your business and we're probably a bit lucky. So the Linen Lover program has been running now for 25 plus years. So with that, we actually, within our, within even our bricks and mortar stores, we know where 85% of our sales are going. So they're going to our members. And so from that, we've got a lot of information about our members and how we tie that together. But it's we're spending a lot of time trying to think about how we better personalize that experience for our for our linen lovers versus uh, that historical batch and blast and everyone getting a very similar experience. So we're, that's where we're spending a lot of time, and I think the other one that we're we're investigating a lot at the moment. We haven't we're t- we're scratching the surface, but I think there's a lot that can come from AI and how that starts to integrate into retail and how we can potentially be far more efficient. And even even that link back to that personalization strategy, one of the challenges of the personalization strategy is how many segments do you go to, how many people do you have, you know, drafting. Well, we. What today might be three emails becomes 35. Well, you know, how do you support that sort of growth? And things like AI, I think, are going to be ways in which we can we can automate some of that that uh, that thinking. I think it still needs a fair amount of human intervention on the other side. I think about how we start with using AI for recommendations that then someone sense checks. I've seen more than one uh, demand planning tool go haywire and have stores with lots of stock and then other stores with no stock because the system said. Because um, I think there's I think there's a real there's always a role for people in some of those. But I think AI will help with that. And the third element comes back to um, combining digital and in store. And I think that's one element I still haven't seen it done amazingly well anywhere. Like when I travel the world, one of the things I go like how are in store team using technology to serve customers. Um, 
I, I love using the Australian accent to be able to talk to store teams over the, overseas. They tend to, they'll tell you a lot of stuff yes. that potentially they shouldn't, <laughs> but you know, if you're inquisitive and you can ask questions, um, they, they're, they're normally happy to share. They're happy that someone's engaging in the conversation with them. Try and pick times where they're not busy trying to serve customers and actually make sure they're achieving their, their targets. But, um, but yeah, you get, I still haven't seen that done really well. And I think for a business like ours in particular with such a wide range available uh, in our homemakers and online that isn't then represented in a 250 metre shopping centre store, how we really bring that together and enhance the customer experience around that is, is the, is something that we've, we've got, we've tried some stuff, we've tested some stuff, we've got more to go, but I think that's one of the the great. Uh, if if someone unlocks it, it'll be worth. Uh, it's worth a lot to to those individual brands as we as you start to think that through. And I think the other challenge with it is, of course, it's always going to be brand specific. Like it, the, you know, I think about what Nike are doing, and yeah, you, know, you go to some of their personalization stores and those big flat. That it's amazing the experience. But I see they go. Well, I'm not quite sure how we translate that back to a dares yet. Yeah. But you know, going and experiencing it and touching it and and talking to people certainly gives you the the insights into what the store team like about it versus, you know, perhaps what are people trying to achieve with it? Well, it's uh, certainly complex and <laughs> and exciting times. Enough change there, Mark, to keep you busy. So we'll uh, wanted to take this opportunity to thank you for joining us today on Retail Therapy at the Amex Lounge and congratulations on all the work you're doing at Adairs. Keep up the great work and best of luck for the year ahead. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for joining me today for Retail Therapy in the Amex Lounge. If you haven't already, make sure you hit that follow button on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You won't want to miss an episode. We can be found wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. If you're a new listener, you can find our back catalogue of new episodes, over 50 now, on our website. We've covered small business, sustainability, tech and innovation, and we even release a yearly Christmas mini-series. For more information on what we do at the ARA, head to retail.org.au. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, wherever you love to connect. All of the links can be found in the show notes. I'd now like to welcome Kelly Taggart, CEO of Roses Only, to the Amex Lounge. Roses Only is a leading Australian-owned retailer for delivered premium flowers and gifts. Its passionate florists, friendly floral consultants and dependable delivery drivers have brought joy to millions of people all over Australia. Formed in 1995, it brings together 45 years of floristry experience and established 10 florist studios in major cities nationwide, as well as some partner florists. Kelly, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Paul. Nice to be here. Since its inception in 1995, Roses Only would have witnessed a lot of change and development in the floristry business. What are some of the ways you've innovated and evolved the business? Yes, we've uh, certainly seen a lot of changes since 1995. Uh, Back then, I think uh, you would have been going into a physical florist shop to buy your flowers. And these days, you have a lot of options where you can buy online, whether it's uh, through your mobile phone, either calling someone and talking to a real person or buying online through your phone or your laptop. So it really um, provides a lot of advantages there in ways that you can order in all manner of types. We've even had someone that has called in while they were riding a horse uh, and ordered flowers on their way to whatever it was that they were doing, riding a horse, would you believe it? So I guess um, 
back then also first when we were online payment options uh, there wasn't many available so I think we only had one payment option available and then it's been with the likes of relationships like American Express that we've been able to really diversify those payment options for customers and even now uh, recently we've been able to roll out uh, pay with points for American Express so you can pay with your credit card points to buy your flowers which we think is really cool. So I guess the evolution of social media has also impacted our industry quite a bit. The way that we market to customers online, uh, the rise of Google AdWords um, is a major part of the floral industry, knowing where you want to deliver something and being able to search for flower delivery to Sydney or flower delivery to Brisbane. That's generally been on the rise since um, online has increased. Uh, and also being understanding of how we can impact uh, the environment um, with more sustainable floristry as well. And I guess over the last 15 years, we've really focused on being a data-driven company and using that data to make sure that we're not creating the waste in the first place. So making sure that we're buying what we need for when we need it, for when our customers want it, which I'm sure you can imagine is a really difficult task. Uh, we have about a hundred different types of flowers and greenery that we manage throughout the year. Um, so you can imagine the complexity that goes with that. And we've been able to get our wastage down to around two to 3% overall, which I think is pretty fantastic. Apart from that though, we're always looking at ways that people are doing things internationally and talking to our local flower farms to see what other sort of uh, business practices we can adopt as well. From before the days of the pandemic until now, what kind of patterns have you noticed in customer behaviour and how has this impacted the way you future-proof your business? I think not much has changed in the way that people still want things really fast and really reliably. But we were already investing in our digital infrastructure for our um, for all of our warehouses around the country. And then when the pandemic hit we saw a volume really increase. So people were, they couldn't visit their loved ones. They really wanted to send a message of love to people. And we saw that really expand. And that was a really beautiful thing to be a part of. So this meant that the advancement that we've had in our technical and digital capabilities through reliable and scalable digital practices meant that we could really provide great customer service to people uh, and reliable delivery. So I guess with more customers looking at buying online, that's meant that we've had a much more expanded customer base to talk to. And uh, thankfully, uh, they've had a really good experience with us and they've been able to experience our brand and how wonderful it is to send flowers to someone and hear the smile on someone's face when they call you or send you a message. And that's definitely driven, driven a lot of uh, customer growth and repeat customers post-pandemic. So, that's been really great for us. 